Well, good morning, Covenant Church. My name is Pastor Nick, and I just want to wish you a very happy Palm Sunday right wherever it is that you sit, hopefully in a comfortable seat in your living room. Uh, if you are not familiar, the Christian tradition has celebrated Palm Sunday as a significant day because it was the day that we read about in scriptures where Jesus entered the holy city of Jerusalem. And <clears throat> it was as Jesus entered the holy, holy city of Jerusalem that God's people, Israel, came out laying palm leaves on the path as Jesus rode on this donkey and he was being hailed as the new king of the Jews. I mean, these people were coming out in throngs and waves ready to crown him king. And what the irony is, is that five short days later, Jesus would actually be nailed to a cross and put to death. It was a stark change of events. And this morning, as we take a look in, uh, in the Apostles' Creed uh, at the statement that actually speaks to this very historical fact that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, that we actually are re-engaging in that week and that dramatic changes of events for the Israelites at that time, God's people at that time, they in their minds pictured Jesus coming into that city and having a triumph over their enemies, over the Romans who ruled and held them captive. And they imagined that as they crowned him king, that he would be overcoming with a certain way, a certain path of victory and triumph over them. And yet Good Friday tells a different story one that caught them off guard, one that they were unaware of the story that God was really telling, a story that was actually more profound. For us, the disconnect might be quite different. Not that we have a lot of expectations coming into Good Friday as Western Americans. For us, maybe the disconnect as we consider or look into the cross and the death of Jesus, we might feel something quite different that for us it might be more, how is it that the death of a Jewish man a little over 2,000 years ago, what does that have to do with me today? How does that change my reality today? What does that mean for me? What difference does that make? That was a long time ago. That was a different culture. That was a different ethnic group. How does that apply? or What does that mean for me today? And what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at that story, and then we're going to kind of unpack it in the sense that God was actually telling a different story, a different narrative through the death of Jesus. Our big idea is this, that the path of Jesus into death tells a more profound story of how you were reconciled to God. Jesus' death tells a more profound story of how it is that you were reconciled, reunited, brought back into relationship with God. And so as we read this story and then unpack it, we're going to actually take a look at why it is that it, it really is meaningful us today to, to re-look at the story and to consider it and to be aware of it because it does. It impacts our everyday, it impacts our eternity, and it helps us to understand how it is that God has brought us back into relationship with him. For some of you who might be tuning in who maybe don't consider yourself a part of the Christian tradition, you might even know that you aren't someone who follows Jesus. For you, hopefully this is an actual looking into why it is that 
Jesus had to go to the cross and what it might actually mean for you as well. Now, we're going to be taking a look at quite a bit of scripture. We're going to be reading the entire chapter of Luke 23, which is a real historical narrative of what transpired on that day that led to Jesus's imminent death. And I want us to take a look at the account from Luke of what actually happened, what it is that Jesus actually endured. So whether in your Bible at home or here on the screen on the left, track with me. I'm going to have some phrases highlighted just to draw your attention um, to what is going on in the narrative. And then, as I said, we will unpack that together this morning. So Luke records this. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him, that's Jesus, before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, You've said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all of Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether this man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he uh, belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. Herod was actually the local principality, the local king of that area. And so Pilate sort of wanted to kind of send Jesus over to be judged by uh, Herod. Herod, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he longed to desire to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some kind of sign done by him. Herod was wanting to see a magic show. So he questioned him at some length, but Jesus made no, man, uh, no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mockery. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other on that day. For behold, this, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after they examined him before him, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of the charges against him. A third time Jesus is declared innocent. Neither, neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. That's what Pilate did. Pilate then actually had Jesus whipped. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. Barabbas was a man who had, thrown, had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time, he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving of death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man, the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross, 
to carry behind Jesus. Jesus having been beat multiple times, Jesus having suffered, having his beard pulled out, having a crown of thorns hammered on his head, was too weak to carry his own cross up the hill. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they, when they will say, Blessed are the barren in the wombs, of that, wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For they do these things when the, when the wood is green. What will happen when it is dry? And there Jesus speaks to uh, the four decades later, Jerusalem would fall to the Romans. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came into the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right, one on the left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is a Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Then save yourself and us. But the others rebuked him saying, do, not fear God, do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence or of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus called out with a loud voice and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who, did, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in linen, a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb, cut in a stone where no one had ever been laid before. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then he, they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. I want to ask you a question. How is it that liberation is achieved? When we think about or read about the liberation of a person or a group of people from slavery, how is it that we imagine that liberation comes about? 
we right now are reading about the liberation of humankind from sin and from death. Liberation occurs because some person or group of people is, is being controlled by a power and that there must be a force that is more powerful than that power in order to overcome that power, that liberation might happen, the liberation might transpire. And that force must apply itself through violence, through suffering, through some amount of conflict in order to overcome that power that is keeping those people or that person in bondage and in slavery. I think one of the disconnects that we have when it comes to reading this story and wondering why is it that Jesus had to suffer this? Why is it that we as Christians would look at this and say this was God's way and God's story of liberating us? Why did it have to play out like this? As that we imagine maybe that reconciliation with God is no big deal. That why is it that God just can't apply a little bit of forgiveness to us? I mean, as people, we're trying our best. We're not perfect. Yeah, we make some mistakes. We do some things that we don't intend to do. And can't God just sort of apply a little bit of forgiveness, a little bit of grace? Can't he just do a little bit for us in order for him to find pleasure in us, for him to have a relationship with us? Why does it have to go to this extent? Jesus said to his own disciples in Matthew eleven twelve. he said this to them. He said, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. What Jesus was saying to his disciples was, hey guys, you're not aware, but something is happening in the spiritual realm. And all you see on the earthly realm is one thing, but what's happening on the spiritual realm is that there is a kingdom of heaven and there is an evil kingdom, an evil one, Satan, and he is trying to overthrow God's rule and reign, and he's trying to do it by violence and by force. This is what is going on. This is the actual battlefield that is taking place. You know, we live in the day right now of the pandemic, and it's an apt illustration because when we listen and tune into the news, we're hearing from government officials, we're hearing from infectious disease doctors, hey, there's an enemy This enemy is invisible, and this enemy wants to harm humanity. It wants to kill us. Even though you can't see it, even though you feel really all right, you feel healthy, you feel young, you feel vibrant, you feel feel that your immune system is maybe stronger than everyone else's, you cannot, you know, ignore the fact that this virus is trying to take people out. And so as people, what do we do? We still celebrate Mardi Gras. We still, college students still held down in Florida. Families still go on vacation. We still gather in large crowds thinking there's nothing going on. I don't see a virus. I don't feel a virus. I don't think that that is really true or what's happening. And so we're being told a narrative. Hey, there's a war going on with this virus. You got to wake up and we must declare war on this virus. What Jesus was saying is that there is an actual spiritual warfare, and this spiritual warfare is violent, and it is bloody. And it is the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of the powers of this world, which are evil, trying to overthrow his rule and his reign. And Jesus' suffering tells a profound story of God's victory over that evil. Jesus' suffering tells us the extent of 
and the way in which God gained victory over that evil power. Romans 5, 19 says this, For by one, man dis, one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. But by one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. What Paul says here in Romans is that through Adam, Adam and Eve, eating of that apple, to them it seemed innocent. To them it seemed like no big deal. It's just an apple, and yet it was participating with the evil powers of this world that were trying to overthrow God's rule and reign. And Adam's disobedience put that very sin nature in all of us. Sometimes we do it on purpose and sometimes unbeknownst to us, but regardless, we all participate along with that evil power, Satan, trying to overthrow God's rule and God's reign. But it was through Jesus' obedience in which we are made righteous. We have the phrase, we say, fight fire with fire, right? And so if my kids uh, are being picked on by a bully at school, I don't say to them, hey, it's no big deal. Just let it, like, happen. Turn the other cheek. I don't say to them, hey, you know, what? actually what you should really do is go buy some chocolate milk for that bully and just give it to them, and maybe it's a peace offering that will make you guys buddies. No, what I say is I say, stick up for yourself. I might say something like, you know, don't be the one that starts it, but you should probably be the one that ends it. And what, I, what I, we communicate is that when there's a violent force coming at us, we ought to somehow, within ourselves, prepare ourselves and meet that force. But Jesus does not do that. What we have to understand is the path of Jesus' suffering to victory is really quite different than anything that we know of in our world. It's not the same as passive resistance or even pacifism. A lot of those movements, one, have a certain power of their own and there's a certain uh, size and number of crowd and how they go about doing that. They also don't have access to authority and power the way Jesus did. Jesus had the power of the kingdom of God and all of God's angels' armies. He could have in a moment annihilated his enemies and yet he does not. He does not speak a word in his defense. He was completely and absolutely alone. And he suffered the violence of man, of Satan, and of God, all within himself. You see, Jesus, he does not overcome evil by dispensing violence, but by receiving it. Jesus does not overcome evil by dispensing violence, but he receives all the violence of his enemies. And it is through receiving it in obedience to his heavenly father that he actually overcomes it. He actually overcomes it because he is completely obedient, unlike us who are disobedient. So Jesus' suffering tells a more profound story of God's victory over evil that is won by receiving violence. Secondly, Jesus' crucifixion tells the profound story of how you were one to God. Jesus' crucifixion tells a profound story of how you were one to God. Do we have any hopeless romantics out there this morning? Uh, Raise your hand in your living room if that's you. Uh, I have my hand raised, not because I'm a helpless romantic, but if you're like the only one in your family with your hand raised, I just didn't want you to feel alone. Uh, Helpless romantics, right? Like they exist. They're the people who, they love a good love story and they love grand acts 
of, of love and of gift giving. What it is is what they, they want to see happen is that they want to see love and passion and excitement visualized. They want to do these big acts because it says, hey, I love you this much. I care about you this much. And what we see is that Christ coming to the cross is God saying, I love you this much. Romans 5, 6 to 8 says this. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, which you and I are not righteous. So maybe for a righteous person, someone might say, hey, I'll take your, I'll take your place, I'll die for you. But we're not righteous. Though perhaps for a good person, might, one might even dare to die. So if there's a good person, maybe I'll say, hey, I'll take your place. But the Bible is clear, we're, no, we're, we're not good at all. We're depraved. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, while we were participating with evil and trying to overthrow God's rule, God says, I will take your place. I'll take your punishment. A great gift is a great gift, but if it's just a great gift, it's just a gesture. It's just a way of saying, hey, I love you this much. I know that my wife really wants an, Iowa, an Apple Watch. She has expressed her desire for that thing. And, you know, if I were to, let's say, for Christmas, you know, buy her that gift, she would know that I love her this much. It doesn't, me buying her that watch doesn't determine that I do love her. It doesn't make us married or it doesn't do anything in the sense of making what is true that I do or do not love her. It is just a way of saying, hey, Honey, I know you really want this thing. I'm going to sacrifice and scrimp and save and do what I need to do in order to give you this gift because this is how much I love you. But God's love is more than that. God's love changes us. More than a demonstration of love, more than a demonstration of love, the cross transforms you into a spotless and worthy bride. Jesus' crucifixion tells us that we participated with the evil one and his assault on God's kingdom. I mean, can you imagine for a moment if your child was being bullied by someone, and instead of defending your child, you got on the side of the bully and actually poked fun at your kid too? I mean, if you're a parent, that, act, that thought actually devastates you. How is it that I could ever participate in someone who's trying to do harm to my child, that I would join them and do harm to my child too? And yet, that's what we did to the father. Our Heavenly Father created us and made us, and yet we joined his enemy. And we said, we stand against you too. And it was in that that made us, we are unworthy recipients of God's love. You know, receiving great acts of love, I mean, they're nice, but they also make us feel insecure. I mean, if you've ever been loved by someone, you felt unworthy of their love, you know what that feels like. Like, man, I don't deserve this love from this friend or this family member. I don't deserve this. And while we appreciate it, we also feel a little insecure because we're like, man, if, if I don't deserve this, and what if they then choose to not give it to me anymore? What if they choose to take it away? What if they choose to leave? And yet what Christ's love, his cross, his crucifixion, his blood actually covers our sin, and then transforms us into a worthy, spotless bride for him. When we talk about the work of Christ, what we're talking about is this, his suffering, his death, or his crucifixion, his death, 
that his work, his blood actually covers your blemishes. His blood covers your infidelities, your scars, your participation with evil, your wounds, your insecurities, and your failures. His blood covers these things, and then he transforms you. I mean, God loves you so much that he actually, although he doesn't need you, although he doesn't need you, through Jesus, he transforms you into someone who actually can worship him and actually can give him enjoyment and pleasure again. You once were an enemy, but now you are a friend, and God can derive satisfaction in relationship with you because Christ transforms you. So Jesus is suffering tells us the profound story of how it is that God conquered evil. Jesus' crucifixion tells a profound story of how it is that you were won back to God. Lastly, Jesus' death tells the profound story of how it is that you receive life. Death is a tragic thing. Death is a reality in our world, and death is a finality. Death is actually God's judgment upon sin and evil. And we do everything that we can to try to put death out of our mind, to try to ignore that that is the reality of every single human being who walks the face of the earth, that we will come to death in our days. One of my daughters, as she is developing uh, as a person, uh, has begun to sort of existentially kind of consider the what happens when I die. And a couple nights ago, she was expressing her fears and concerns that one day her life will end, and she was rightly distraught and upset about that. And I looked at her and I said, you know, you're right. You are going to die, and it could even be tomorrow. No, I didn't say that to her at all. That's like the worst dad of the year award if I actually said that to her. No, what do I say to her? I say, honey, that is so far into the future. You've got a long life to live. Let's think about the good things. Let's go get some ice cream and watch some shows and let's enjoy life together. Let's not think about death. But the reality is that my daughter is having to contend with the fact, and although she doesn't yet know it, but death, death is a signifier that we abandon God and we are unworthy of him and that God will finally judge sin. You know, the way that we deal with the Noah's story is a lot like this. And we think of the Noah story in the ark, we just sort of have these pictures, especially maybe from some of us who grew up in the church in childhood of, you know, Noah with his family and smiling faces and happy animals, you know, the tigers sort of like cuddling up next to the monkey, you know, and then there's a rainbow in the background and everything is so happy. And yet we only focus on the back end of that story when really Noah and his family and the ark and and the animals and the rainbow all happen after God judged the earth through a flood. He annihilated it. He saw the evil on this earth and then he killed it. Because death is a rightful punishment for and judgment upon sin. Our world, in every which way, tries to justify sin. We try to overlook sin. We try to call sin no big deal. We try to call, or we do call evil good. And it's kind of like that frog that like boils in water. You put a frog in a, uh, uh, a pot with lukewarm water, and it's comfortable. It doesn't need to jump out, and it doesn't know that its life is in danger. And then you begin to crank up the heat, and the frog adjusts and adjusts and adjusts, and it doesn't realize that it's going to boil alive. What Jesus is saying is that 
God's judgment is coming. God will judge sin. Sin is a big deal. And not only that, but Jesus' death deals with God's judgment upon sin. So we look at, and we might wonder why it is that Jesus had to die on a cross. We have to come to, to recognize that death means that we are unworthy of the presence of God. We participated with evil. We were God's enemy, not God's friend. We had nothing to contribute or to add to God. And we also are deserving of his rightful judgment of us. And yet, and yet, Jesus, because he loves us, stood in that place and he took that death for us. That in real time, in real space, in real history, on that Friday, in those hours, at that time, he did something for you. I love the way that Luke ends this narrative, this passage. He says, and on the Sabbath day, they rested as they were commanded to do. That's Saturday for them. It was before the resurrection. It was before Jesus rose again from the dead. And for a whole day, they had to sit in the death of Christ. And they were not yet aware of the victory that Christ had yet won for them or the life that he was going to give them through his, uh, through his resurrection. But what they had to do is they had to sit in the weightiness that Christ just went to the cross for each and every single one of them. And they could do nothing about it. And that's what God invites you to do today. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. There's nothing that you add to your salvation. And yet God invites you to rest in that. Last week I talked about um, just this illustration of, of a hammock. That the Lord invites us to hammock upon him. And I had encouraged us to consider that because Jesus is all that he is, and he delivers this complete salvation, that we don't participate with him in salvation. We actually lay on him like a hammock. We don't try to strive and become better. We don't try to, to somehow make ourselves a friend of God when we're really not. What we do is we rest upon his work. We lay on him. And when my mom put up that hammock when I was in high school, underneath these two giant trees, and I actually was resting, one of the things I loved was that there's these thick uh, ropes that were intertwined together that actually held the hammock up, that actually held my body up. And when I was actually resting, I felt those ropes on my back, and I felt the support that they brought. And we think about, well, what does it mean? How is it that we rest? What do we rest upon? We rest upon Christ. Those ropes were put there, were, were knit together through Christ's suffering, through his crucifixion, and through his death. And we are invited to now rest upon his work. That while death is sombering, it's sober, it causes me to have to wrestle with some true things about myself. It also brings great comfort and peace. Because I know that when I couldn't, Jesus did. Let me pray for us. Jesus, as we lay on you, as we rest in you yet again, God, we sit in this somber week before your resurrection. Would we not too quickly gloss over 
your suffering, your crucifixion, your death and burial? Would we not too quickly move beyond it? Would we not too quickly just go and get a bowl of ice cream and ignore it? But really, Jesus, we are all in need. We all have sinned. We've all fallen short. We're all uh, depraved. And yet, even with that, you loved us enough to take all of the violence of the evil one, all of the judgment of the Heavenly Father, and all of the death that we deserved, that we might actually find life and love and relationship, renewal, wholeness, holiness in you. Would we receive that today? We rest in that this week. We ask this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.